Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution, which is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And tonight, we are thrilled to be introducing, live on C-SPAN, a wonderful partnership with our dear C-SPAN friends, uh, for a new series called Landmark Cases that will explore the human stories behind 12 of the most historic and frequently cited and important cases in Supreme Court history. This partnership with C-SPAN is so important to us because like the National Constitution Center, C-SPAN is a private nonprofit with an inspiring nonpartisan mission. It was founded by the cable television industry to provide balanced and unedited and nonpartisan coverage of public events. You've just heard the National Constitution Center's inspiring motto, and we both believe that there's no better way to educate the public about the Constitution and about the historic cases that have given it life than by telling the human stories behind these cases. So that's why this series is such a thrill and it's such a privilege to do in collaboration with C-SPAN. It's now my great pleasure to introduce my friend, uh, a colleague, and the visionary leader of C-SPAN who has made this series possible. Please join me in welcoming Susan Swain. So glad that you're here. Good evening, and thank you for being here. I'm a native Philadelphian, and I'm so glad to be home tonight, uh, especially to tell you about this wonderful project. Now, how many C-SPAN watchers do we have in the room here? Oh, great. Uh, well, most of you think about C-SPAN as Congress and uh, public policy events, but for about 20 years, we have also been doing major historical series. And in fact, Mark Farkas, who is in the front row here, Mark, stand up, uh, has been the producer for most of these uh, over the years. Um, about a year and a half ago, we had just finished one that we really enjoyed a great deal. It was the biographies of the First Ladies. It was a year-long project on C-SPAN. And we were casting about for what to do next. And very fortuitously, I was invited graciously by Jeff Rosen to join the Board of Trustees of the National Constitution Center for their annual dinner in Washington, D.C., Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the speakers. She got up and told the story of Virginia versus Loving. And a really dramatic story about the police bursting into the bedroom of the Mr. and Mrs. Loving, who were an interracial couple in Virginia in the 1950s, and arresting them because it was against Virginia law at that time for interracial marriage. And her point was that so many of the cases that get to the Supreme Court have very dramatic human stories behind them. But by the time it goes through all the appeals process and becomes names on dockets, a lot of that gets lost. And it shouldn't, because essentially the Supreme Court is us. So I came back rather on fire about this, as, as Mark will, will tell you, uh, and Terry Murphy, our Vice President of Programming, 
because, as you know, C-SPAN has actually been lobbying for a long time to have cameras in the Supreme Court, something that has been elusive. And we struggle all the time to bring the Supreme Court to the public. What we do every Friday afternoon when they release their audio tapes of the week's arguments, we put pictures to those and try to do the best we can to tell about the cases on the docket. So this uh, idea of putting together a series looking at landmark cases would allow us to tell you who are interested more about the history of the court, its import on society, the impact these cases have had over time, and most importantly, the dramatic people stories that that really the court is here. One of the things you learned about this is that this court is not open to just the wealthy and the powerful, but as we'll learn tonight, for petitioners from all walks of society. And that's an important lesson for us to understand. So what I want to show you next is out of that genesis of the Constitution-centered dinner and going back and pitching my, my colleagues about the fact that we should do this. I want to show you the trailer that is going to introduce the uh, October 5th series, Landmark Cases, Historic Supreme Court Decisions, with C-SPAN and the Constitution Center. Let's take a look. Business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Number 759, Ernest Miranda, Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments number 18, Roe against Wade. Barbara and Madison is probably the most famous case this court ever decided. Dred and Harriet existed as enslaved people here on land where slavery wasn't legally recognized. Putting the Brown decision into effect would take presidential orders and the presence of federal troops and marshals and the courage of children. We wanted to pick cases that changed the direction and import of the court in society and that also changed society. search and Mrs. Mapp demanded to see the paper and to read it, see what it was, which they refused to do so she grabbed it out of his hand to look at it and thereafter the police officer handcuffed her. I can't imagine a better way to bring the Constitution to life than by telling the human stories behind great Supreme Court cases. Fred Korematsu boldly opposed the forced internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. After being convicted for failing to report for relocation, Mr. Korematsu took his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite unpopular. If you had to pick one freedom that was the most essential to the functioning of a democracy, it has to be freedom of speech. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Landmark Cases an exploration of 12 historic Supreme Court decisions and the human stories behind them. 
a new series on C-SPAN, produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, debuting Monday, October 5th at 9 p.m. Our partnership with the Constitution Center is really essential to this project because, as you can imagine, narrowing this down to 12 cases was quite a chore. (laughs) We had help from many of their experts here. We also went to people in the legal community and people really on the right and left uh, to try to find a list that would be inclusive and representative of the great history of the court over this time. But you know some of you are going to quibble with our decisions. But I hope you do, because that's really part of the process here, is to think about what the court has done and which cases are really important and agree with us or disagree with us on the ones that we've chosen. And the Constitution Center has also been invaluable in helping us get the word out, as with this event tonight. They're partnering with with us for a website that will be full of educational materials about the court. Those of you who have children, we hope you'll introduce their teachers to this, all free of charge. Uh, So that all of us can better understand how the court works and its history over the past 200 years. So at this point, tonight what we're trying to do is to let you know about it, help ask you to help spread the word about this series, and plan on being with us, because in C-SPAN style, these are all going to be interactive live programs. We're going to, we have sent a video journalist out to historic sites associated with all these cases. They've been to Dred Scott's home, for example. Uh, and uh, we are going to bring it to life by showing you some of the history behind it. But we'll also have some of the best experts at the nation at the table, biographers, historians, court experts, there to tell us about the importance of these cases and to take your calls, answer questions on Twitter and Facebook. So be part of it. Continue the education if you're interested. And tonight what we're going to do, we just had fun preparing for this, but you're going to have a group of, of diverse court experts and historians who will help you understand why we're so excited about this project because there are some wonderful stories to tell. And with this point, one other person I want to introduce you to is our Vice President of Programming, Terry Murphy. Terry has been at C-SPAN for 35 years, 34, 34 years, but who's quibbling? And he is really the man behind all of this. He helps bring all of our ideas to fruition and doesn't get enough credit for that. So this project is very much his as well. So at this point, I want to turn the mic back to Jeff Rosen and get our panel started and learn more about these interesting cases. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you so much, uh, Susan. You can tell about our excitement and enthusiasm for this series, and now I am extremely excited and honored to introduce three of the most astute court watchers in America, uh, Akhil Amar, Judge Michael Bailson, and Neil Katyal. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is a very, please sit down, gentlemen, a really uh, great group of friends and scholars. Let me introduce them briefly because they are so uh, well-known to uh, uh, America. Uh, Neil Katyal was the former Deputy Solicitor General of the United States. He has uh, argued major uh, Supreme Court uh, cases, 24 of them, uh, in fact, uh, he is now uh, a law professor at Georgetown University, a partner at Hogan and Hartson. He also, ladies and gentlemen, happens to be my brother-in-law. <laughs> How do you think I got this job? <laughs> and I am very excited to announce that if this series goes well, as we hope it will, then Neil and I are going to follow it with another 
uh, TV series about the Supreme Court that will be called Brothers in Law. <laughs> uh, next to me in familial affection is my dear friend and first teacher of constitutional law, Akhil Amar. You've seen him before at the Constitution Center where he's a distinguished member of our scholarly advisory board. Uh, he's the most uh, creative and influential constitutional scholar of his generation. He has written many books. He was here uh, just a few months ago to talk about his latest one, uh, uh, which was uh, – Akhil, I can't keep track of the titles because there were so many. The, the geography book is called – The Law of the Land. The Law of the Land. It was not uh, – uh, in this list of his great books, which include The Bill of Rights – America's Constitution, a biography, America's unwritten constitution. You know this is an educational enterprise, ladies and gentlemen, and I want you to read Akhil's books because they're the best way to learn about the Constitution. I would begin with America's Constitution, a biography, if I can recommend that one, and then I want you to read the rest of them too because they will transform your knowledge of the Constitution and fire you with a passion for learning more about it the way it has me for my entire life. I'm so grateful to this great scholar and teacher. Thank you, Thank Akhil. You. Thank you. And finally, we're so honored to have Judge Michael Bailson. He was appointed to the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of, Columbia, of Pennsylvania by President George W. Bush in 2002. He sits uh, nearby uh, at the federal courthouse uh, near the Constitution Center. He has an extraordinary career, which include uh, serving as an assistant district attorney under Arlen Specter. Uh, U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and he was here for just a great discussion a few months ago with uh, Judge Ted Rakoff about whether or not the U.S. sentencing system is broken and needs repair. So uh, we're so glad that he's here as well. All right, gentlemen, we have, we're not going to get through all 12 cases. <laughs> and in addition to giving you just a flavor of the cases, we also want to talk about what it's like to argue before the court, which Neil can talk about, what it's like to hear the cases that are reviewed by the court, which Judge Bailson can talk about, and the extraordinary historical uh, and constitutional insights that Akhil can give us. But I think we do need to begin with Marbury versus Madison, because that is... Uh, the case that starts off the series and that many consider uh, one of the most important cases the court has decided. Akhil, is that conventional wisdom correct, that Marbury really is all that important? Well, you heard Justice Ginsburg say it was, and, and, and far be it from me to disagree with her, but I'm going to maybe qualify what she said a bit. Um, we're here to talk about um, the court, and this is the National Constitution Center, and I just want you to remember they're not the same thing. The Constitution encompasses all three branches of government. Uh, this is a wonderful series focused on the third out of three listed in the Constitution. And from a certain perspective, Marbury, which basically stands for the proposition of what's called judicial review, that courts, not just the Supreme Court, but all courts in appropriate cases and controversies can actually hold even acts of Congress unconstitutional if the courts feel that Congress has, has um, acted in a way that's not consistent with the Constitution. It's an important principle, but one that was established actually before Marbury. It was pretty well established in American jurisprudence by state courts and previous courts. Marbury is the only case 
before 1850 in which the Supreme Court ever invalidates an act of Congress. They're striking down state laws a bunch of times, the nation invalidating a state statute, but invalidating an act of Congress happens only once in 1803 in Marbury v. Madison. It's a very technical issue. Most people, even many lawyers, wouldn't be able to tell you what was really at stake. It's original versus appellate jurisdiction, which is a pretty technical, arcane little thing. Um, Meanwhile, um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, pre- presidents of the United States, by contrast, are vigorously enforcing the Constitution with veto messages, 25 or so vetoes on, on constitutional grounds before 1850, one little act of judicial review, and, and not, not so important an issue. Presidents are striking, uh, vetoing bills that courts have upheld or would uphold, like the, the bank. Um, and um, so just to put it in perspective... From a certain point of view, Marbury isn't even the most important constitutional decision of 1803. The most important constitutional decision of 1803 was the Louisiana Purchase, and it was made by a president, because without that, there is no United States of America as we know it today. And it's just a reminder that as important as courts are, presidents who actually, under the Constitution, are supposed to pick the judges, and the judges aren't supposed to pick the presidents, but, but see Bush v. Gore. Um, so, so I just want you to remember that there are three branches. Congress is first mentioned, is first among equals. Presidents make very important constitutional decisions. Courts are important too. Judicial review has become much more important over the years. In today's world, courts loom much larger than they did in 1803. Today, in an average year, the Supreme Court is striking down one or two acts of Congress and considering big ones like Obamacare and the death penalty and abortion and all all, all the the hot-button issues. That wasn't as true in 1803. That is a great uh, introduction and a reminder that Marbury has come to mean far more today than it did at the time. Susan mentioned that uh, we're launching a website with lots of great interactive teaching tools, and one of the most exciting of them is one that I'm thrilled is going to be launched officially tomorrow here at the Constitution Center with Justice Breyer in attendance, but I can now preview it for you for the first time uh, before a live audience, and this is the Interactive Constitution. This is just such an exciting uh, tool because we have, with the help of our friends at the Federalist Society, which is a leading uh, conservative and libertarian uh, organization, and the American Constitution Society, a leading progressive organization, assembled the top scholars in America from all perspectives to write about every clause of the Constitution. And free and online, and you'll find this on the C-SPAN site and on our website, I'm praying now that this is going to work because I haven't tried it live before. You can click on any provision of the Constitution, read the top scholars with a common statement about what they agree about its history and meaning, and then separate statements about how they disagree. So I want to give it a test drive by using it to talk about our next case, which is Lochner uh, versus New York. And here, uh, with flawless ease, I'm going to click on the uh, due process clause of the 14th Amendment, Uh, because that's the one that was at issue in Lochner. And here's the 14th Amendment, and I'm going to go to the Due Process Clause. uh, And it talks, uh, first of all, we have the text, and it's really important to read the Constitution before you begin thinking about its meaning. And the Due Process Clause says, no state shall make or enforce any law uh, uh, which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And here you have two great scholars, Nathan Chapman and Kenji Yoshino, coming from very different perspectives, 
giving you their common view about what the due process clause means. And they talk about a doctrine called substantive due process, which sounds like an oxymoron. How can you have process and substance at the same time? And they mention this case called Lochner versus New York. And they say that in the early decades of the 20th century, the court used the due process clause to strike down economic regulations. And the 1905 case of Lochner is a symbol of this economic substantive due process. And they say it is now wildly or widely reviled as an instance of judicial activism. That's an adjective that these two scholars from different perspectives agreed on. Uh, Neil, uh, do you agree with our two scholars that Lochner is wildly reviled, and tell us why it is, if so, and, and what its current significance in constitutional debate is. Uh, yes and no, I agree. So Lochner is a case coming out of New York in which uh, basically New York said, we're going to protect bakers, and we're going to protect bakers by saying they don't have to work more than 60 hours uh, and the like, and it's challenged by the owners of the bakeries who say, no, we have freedom of contract, essentially. We should be able, in a laissez-faire economy, to pay someone we want, have them work what we want, and so on. And the Supreme Court strikes down the New York worker protections, saying, yeah, essentially freedom of contract. And it raises exactly what you just heard Professor Omar talking about, which is this notion of judicial review, the power of the U.S. Supreme Court five justices, just a bare majority out of the nine sitting there, to invalidate something that is passed by a democratic process. And that's an issue whenever the court strikes something down. So however you feel about abortion, for example, you know, Roe versus Wade, when it comes to the court, it strikes down a law of Texas. And even if 100% of people in Texas wanted to restrict abortion because they believed in a pro-life conception, Seven justices there, it was a 7-2 decision, said, no, that's off the table in our democracy. This year, we had a very striking example of it, and one that I'm going to bring it back to Lochner in a moment. Supreme Court heard, I think, one of the most consequential cases in our lifetimes, indeed, maybe the only case that many of, uh, many of our children will know by name, which is Obergefell versus Hodges, which was the question, does the Constitution require states to recognize same-sex marriage? And I was in the courtroom when the decision came down uh, uh, at the end of June, a couple months ago, and Justice Kennedy read his opinion saying, yes, the Constitution requires it. Then Chief Justice Roberts read his dissent, something I think he may have never done before. So, you know, he rarely, he certainly dissented sometimes, but, uh, but he rarely will read from the bench. We obviously felt very strongly about it. And one of the things he said is, there is no precedent for the idea that the Constitution requires same-sex marriage. And then he paused, and I'm paraphrasing here slightly, and he said, no, no, wait, there's one precedent, Lochner versus New York. The idea that five justices, or he called it five lawyers, sitting in Washington, D.C., could tell for the democracy, that tell the democratic government that, no, you can't do something, it's off the table, you can't restrict marriage to one man and one woman. So... You know, there's a real debate, I think, uh, about the role of the court and when is it appropriate for them to strike something down. And when I went to law school and I had the benefit of studying with Professor Amar, because of Roe versus Wade in part, conservatives had a consistent methodology, which was judicial restraint. The courts shouldn't be striking down and invalidating laws passed by a democratic, uh, by a democratic majority, except in extremely rare circumstances. That's what the Chief Justice... I think, has adhered to time and again in, my, in, in his opinions. But there's now a new strand of conservative thought that says, no, 
Absolutely not. We should resuscitate Lochner. There are books about rehabilitating Lochner being written now. My colleague Randy Barnett at Georgetown is one of the leading proponents of this view, arguing cases to the Supreme Court, saying, no, use your power to strike down laws that are progressive, that uh, you know, worker protection laws or whatever, uh, and use the power of the court affirmatively as a sword. Um, that is a great summary of the debate, and that suggests, as you just uh, told us, that if there used to be a consensus that uh, Lochner was widely reviled, it now has a constituent. And here we have Nathan Chapman actually talking about substantive due process from the conservative perspective, criticizing it and saying it has little support in the text and history of the Constitution. And you can read his statement, but um, you suggest that there are some other conservatives, and you mentioned Professor Barnett, who disagree, libertarians and conservatives. Um, speaking of judicial activism, uh, Judge I want to ask you about the case of Miranda. That was famously uh, attacked in its time as an example of judicial activism. Today, uh, it was reaffirmed by the Supreme Court, which uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, after having criticized it repeatedly, said it had come to be accepted by the culture, a statement that caused Justice Scalia's head to explode. He He was not happy with that at all. But let's look at the text of the Fifth Amendment, Uh, which um, in particular is the self-incrimination clause. Uh, And uh, and then I want to ask you about uh, your thoughts about Miranda. So the Fifth Amendment says um, on this flawless interactive constitution, which uh, uh, members of the audience and C-SPAN viewers, you can find at constitutioncenter.org, it says that um, nor shall any person uh, be compelled in a criminal case to be a witness against himself. And the Supreme Court interpreted that as well as elements of the Sixth Amendment to require the reading of the Miranda rights. What do you think of the Miranda decision? Well, uh, at the time, in 1966, I was an assistant district attorney here in Philadelphia. And uh, it was a really a very revolutionary opinion. It was another five to four decision in which the Supreme Court reversed a conviction, but not only reversed a conviction, but enunciated a, uh, a series of rules that police officers uh, have to give certain warnings to defendants who are in custody uh, before interrogating them. And uh, there was really no precedent for this uh, at all. And um, some police departments had followed this. Uh, Some federal law enforcement officers had followed this, but it had never been adopted as a rule of the Constitution. Now, of course, the self-incrimination clause is a very integral part of the Constitution, but uh, many scholars believe that it should not apply to the mere questioning of an individual when they've been arrested and they're in custody. The, uh, I gain to say that the Miranda Rule has resulted in uh, millions of pretrial motions in courts across the United States because the rule was applicable across all 50 states as well as the federal government. Uh, and I don't, before Miranda, we had a general rule that in order for a prosecutor to introduce a confession, uh, it had to be voluntary. And if the defendant believed the statement was involuntary, which was a very flexible, uh, pragmatic kind of approach, the ju- and the judge accepted that through testimony of witnesses, then the judge uh, was ob- obligated to suppress the statement. But now, the uh, tide had turned and it became a question of whether specific questions 
the, the proper specific questions enunciated by five justices in this opinion had been read to a defendant and the defendant acknowledged that he understood them, he understood his rights, and he agreed to talk to the police. Now, uh, without getting into psychology, and I'm not a psychologist, but uh, I don't think that Miranda has uh, really served what the purposes claimed at all. There are many defendants who have committed crimes and they want to talk about it. They've been arrested and they feel that confession is a first step in, uh, in um, rehabilitation and in cooperation, and uh, that's what they want to do. Not every defendant, and perhaps not, all, not a majority, but some do. And the voluntariness is still a key ingredient. But whether somebody's been read a series of specific questions and given the right answers, in my view, has really nothing to do with whether a statement is voluntary. Uh, and it has resulted in a number of people who have committed serious crimes going free because the police did not ask the right questions, even though the statement given by the defendant was completely voluntary. We still have a problem in this country, and that is with the conviction of innocent people. There are still a lot of innocent people in jail, and we should achieve for zero tolerance. That, And whether somebody's been warned of the rights really has nothing to do with whether they are innocent of the of, of being eventually charged and convicted of a crime. That is a powerful statement. Um, I think those criticisms of Miranda uh, are shared by our uh, conservative commentator, Paul Cassell, who's one of its leading critics. Um, and I, on the show, we're also going to tell the human story behind Miranda. It was an amazing story that after uh, Miranda... Uh, Supreme Court decision came down, he kept getting into trouble, he kept getting rearrested, and he was eventually shot with a copy of his Miranda rights in his pocket. It's an amazing story. Neil, I think you may not have agreed with all of the judges' comments. Do you want to defend Well, no, I I actually just wanted to supplement it. One of the great things about this series is it's really going to tell the stories behind the cases, and some of those stories involve the advocates. And in Miranda, actually, someone profoundly agreed with the judge um, uh, uh, in his criticism of Miranda, which is Thurgood Marshall. Now, Thurgood Marshall is going to loom large in this series. He argued not just Brown versus Board of Education, one of the cases, but he argued Miranda, and he argued it against the defendant. Um, and he was the Solicitor General at the time, the nation's top lawyer, the job I used to have, sometimes called the 10th Justice, but certainly not called the 10th Justice when I had the job. Um, and, uh, <laughs> That's uh, not true. And, and, I called you the 10th Justice. And, uh, <laughs> and lawyer Marshall told the Supreme Court, actually, that there wasn't a right to a lawyer uh, if, if one couldn't be afforded uh, by the defendant, uh, that that wasn't something that was required. Now, you know, that's a very interesting thing for someone like Thurgood Marshall who spent his life not just on school desegregation, but on defending poor African-Americans in death penalty cases and the like in the South. So it's a good reminder that the advocacy role of, uh, you know, in law you know, doesn't always reflect someone's individual preferences. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Akil, you have been a critic of uh, criminal procedure cases, and one of the other ones we're talking about is MAP versus Ohio, which has an incredible human story. Uh, Why don't you tell us about the facts of that case and then whether or not you're a fan of it? So first, a shout-out to, you know, my great students here. So I think someone was telling me that Thurgood Marshall... Um, who held the job that, that Neil later held as Solicitor General. I think he argued 33 cases before the Supreme Court, something like that. And Neil, you're, you're up to 
you'll be up to t- like 26 next week or something or next month. So, so um, it's the A Rod and you know all the A and, and other things. So just keep an eye on this, the young man. And and I can tell you, he's he's never used a performing enhancing drug. Um, uh, so. Um, it is true that I am a critic to some extent. I'm, I'm generally a huge admirer of the Warren Court and the Warren Court Revolution. I am a critic in criminal procedure. I'm on the conservative side um, uh, in, in that. I, I judge, I think you made some, some thoughtful points about Miranda. I don't have a strong view about Miranda so much, and here's why. It's possible that people confess to things or are perceived as confessing to things that they didn't do. Because words are unreliable and in certain contexts where someone is trying to get you to say something, um, it might very well be that you confess or seem to confess to something you didn't do. And so that's why Miranda is a little complicated. I believe that the purpose of the criminal justice system is to get at the truth and especially to protect innocent defendants from erroneous conviction. And I'm 100% with you, Judge. But MAP, to my mind, is a, is a far more troubling case because that's a case about the suppression of reliable physical evidence, whereas Miranda involves the suppression of words, of confessions that may or may not be um, reliable. That's, that's the question. Um, but when we toss out uh, the proverbial smoking gun, the, the blood-stained knife with the defendant's fingerprints on it and the victim's blood on it, we are tossing out highly reliable evidence. Um, and in some cases, when we exclude reliable evidence, we make it more likely in all sorts of ways I can't go into right now that even innocent people are themselves um, targeted um, as the suspects rather than the, the culprit who really did it. Here's one other thing I want you to understand about MAP. MAP did not originate the so-called exclusionary rule, which suppresses reliable physical evidence. It merely, in the 1960s, applied that rule against the states. And here, um, I just want to remind you all of one of the most important doctrines in all of American constitutional law. It's a doctrine that lawyers call incorporation. You've already heard about substantive due process. And almost everything that you call the Bill of Rights It's actually, strictly speaking, not the Bill of Rights because the original Bill of Rights applies only against the federal government. First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging free speech, free press, free exercise of religion, and so on. The original amendments limited the federal government and only the federal government, but after the Civil War, we, the people, added this 14th Amendment to the Constitution, and one important idea that I actually do believe in is that the, the fundamental privileges, immunities, rights, freedoms that theretofore had applied only against the feds now apply against the state. So I'm a critic not just of MAP, um, but also of the earlier cases saying the federal government in a federal criminal case is barred from using reliable physical evidence if it acquired it in a certain way. And by the way, no framer ever believed in the exclusionary rule, not a single one of them. No court in America ever excluded reliable physical evidence for the entire 100 years after the Declaration of Independence. It's a kind of made-up rule. It's a rule made up during the Lochner era, actually, originally, to limit federal government and white-collar prosecutions. And then, in the 1960s, that got applied against states. And when you apply it against states, we're talking not tax evasion, you know, customs violations, federal offenses, but murder, rape, robbery, where there really are victims. So it is important for you to hear uh, Akil's uh, extremely provocative views, but I want you, and, and Susan wants you, 
to educate yourself about the views on the other side. And you can do that both by looking at the interactive constitution. Akil writes about the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. John Harrison is his interlocutor. But also every week, C-SPAN will bring together scholars and thought leaders and historians of different perspectives uh, to present the debate so that you can make up your own mind. Uh, Two of the 12 cases that we are talking about are considered among the worst in Supreme Court history. And I think arguably at the top of that list is probably Dred Scott versus Sanford. It's such uh, an epithet that during, I remember the presidential debate between uh, John Kerry and, and George W. Bush, both candidates agreed that the worst example of judicial activism was, was Dred Scott. Neil, why is that the case? Uh, and, uh, and what does Dred Scott stand for? So, I mean, Dred Scott basically is the pro-slavery decision that prompts the Civil War. So this is why it's that important. It, you know, it's a huge, big deal. And it's important today because, as Akil said, look at the text of the 14th Amendment. He was talking about the Due Process Clause. There's another part of the 14th Amendment that says that there shall be equal protection of the laws to all persons. All persons. Why does it say the word persons? Other parts of the 14th Amendment single out citizens for rights. But the Equal Protection Clause reads differently. Now, why does it read differently? Well, because Dred Scott versus Sanford said that if you were a slave, if you were a non-citizen, you had zero constitutional rights. None. And we fought a civil war in part about that, to repudiate that. And when Representative Bingham wrote the text of the 14th Amendment, the draft, he said, I need to overrule the worst line in the worst Supreme Court case in American history, that line that said only citizens have constitutional rights. And so now the 14th Amendment reads the way it does, and that's why rights are given to us on a far more robust basis. There's so much to say about Dred Scott. I mean, you know, I'll just say as an advocate, now when I argue at the court, you know, I get a half hour to argue my case, and the other side gets a half hour to argue their case. Uh, Dred Scott's argument, the first oral argument, was four days long. And then there was another argument for four days long. And by the way, the lawyer for Dred Scott was Justice Curtis's brother, arguing the case on the U- in the U.S. Supreme Court with his brother as one of the justices uh, hearing it. And, you know, he may have done a good job, he may not have, but, you know, unfortunately, the, the southern states had a, had a powerful advocate who wasn't actually in the courtroom, President Buchanan. He had been elected, uh, he hadn't been sworn in yet, and he went and lobbied the justices secretly to side with the southern view in Dred Scott, which they ultimately did. And President Buchanan's inauguration, I think, is on March 6th. Uh, 1857, uh, excuse me, on March 4th, 1867, uh, 1857, and on March, and, and the decision comes down on March 6th. So he gives his inauguration speech two days before the decision comes down, but he knows what the decision says. And he says it in the speech. So very different time period than now in which Supreme Court processes are much more regularized, uh, fortunately, but um, a real stain on the court's history. There are a couple of aspects of Dred Scott. So Dred Scott says, in effect, only citizens have constitutional rights. And the 14th Amendment actually says, no, persons who aren't citizens have constitutional rights. Neil just told you that. But Dred Scott also said, blacks could never, ever, ever be citizens. Now, this is important because in about 20 minutes, there's going to be a presidential debate. 
one of the guys who's going to get up there. This place has to be nonpartisan, but I don't have to be. You, one you of the sort people, of do. <laughs> one of the people who's going to get up there is going to tell you that actually people born in the United States aren't absolutely entitled, basically, to be citizens. The 14th Amendment says everyone born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a citizen. And that sentence was also about overruling Dred Scott. Um, and so the, 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 the residence of Dred Scott, both for aliens and for people who were born in the United States, whoever their parents happen to have been, you know, is an issue that we're still talking about today. That's, that's fine. And you, you, uh, I don't you, think I crossed the line. No, you're permitted. In this, in this house, you can talk about any constitutional issue you wish, and you can express strong opinions. We just don't talk about politics, and you have not done that. And you've called our attention to the text of the 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Go in, check out the... Uh, statement on the citizenship by Akil and John. Wait, I'm clicking. Oh, wait, it says coming soon. Akil, you've got to turn in your citizenship clause so we can... Back in the day, these guys were asking for extensions, you know, for their paper assignments from me, and now I, I'm, I'm begging them from them. You have got maybe three days because you've been doing a lot of work for us, but the country is waiting. Soon you'll be able to read Akil. And you know, God, you the dog we... ate my homework. <laughs> you know, you, you introduced me as a court watcher. I'm a court follower, you know, as a district court judge. I'm at the low, at the bottom end of the uh, hierarchy, and I've got to follow the Supreme Court more than watch them. But I haven't given up my First Amendment rights, so when I come here, I can criticize Miranda and Matt, but when I go back across the street, I've got to follow them. Excellent. Well, tell us, Judge, you know, many of these cases obviously originated in the lower courts, and the human stories are often played out uh, before you as a judge, so... What is it? Well, let's take the most famous, the most celebrated case on the list. That's Brown versus Board of Education. District judges played a crucial role initially in uh, in, many of them upholding segregation, and then they had to implement the decision after it came down. Tell us about district judges and the Brown. Well, first, just and I've had some of my cases go up to the Supreme Court, and I've uh, been affirmed. uh, But uh, there are sometimes when the Supreme Court reverses what a lower court judge did, and and then send it back. And you've got to follow uh, as best you can what the Supreme Court says the rule is. And, of course, this applies. There's an intermediate appellate court in the federal system, as some of you know, called the Circuit Court of Appeals. And that's where uh, a person who uh, doesn't like what I do, they go first to the Circuit Court, and can, which can... affirm or reverse what a district court judge did. And then the Supreme Court has what we call discretionary jurisdiction. The Supreme Court doesn't have to take every case that is uh, that someone asks it to take. It has discretion what to do. Uh, And it takes actually very few of the cases where people uh, file petitions requesting uh, that the Supreme Court hear the case. But when uh, any of these cases are reversed, they go back to the district court which has to fashion a remedy. And sometimes Supreme Court decisions can be very confusing. Uh, many of them, as you know, are five to four. Some are uh, four, four, one, which means that there were four uh, justices on even side, and then there's a concurrent, there, then one justice, which all happens to be, it's no secret, Justice Kennedy, cast a vote deciding one way, but his opinion really carries a significant amount of weight because he broke the tie. 
And when that case comes back to the district court, and I had a case like that involving uh, Lower Merion school redistricting, and I had to decide whether uh, what the Lower Merion school district did uh, complied with Justice Kennedy's single opinion in a case that was otherwise four to four. What did you decide? Well, I decided that Lower Merion had acted lawfully, and my opinion was affirmed by the Third Circuit, and the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Have you ever been reversed by the Supreme Court? Not directly. Oh, I've, uh, <laughs> uh, there, uh, there have been some cases where they've uh, disagreed with um, something I did in a different case, but not directly reversed. I've been affirmed uh, four times, and... Uh, uh, the most interesting one was a case involving vaccine. Uh, and, and I have 60 seconds. So this is a... Sure. Some of you know that if Congress set up a special remedy for people who claim they've been injured by a vaccine. And Congress set this up to encourage uh, parents to have children vaccinated. And they set up a special court where if you feel you've been injured, your child has been injured by a vaccine, you can go to this special court, but your dam- you can get a remedy, but your damages are limited. Well, the individual who uh, had, had uh, filed in our court, and I had the case, he claimed that was improper and unconstitutional, and that he had been deprived of his right to sue. And I rejected the claim, the Third Circuit agreed with me, and the Supreme Court affirmed that. Great. I, have, I do have to ask the Oprah question. How does it feel to be reversed by the Supreme Court? Well, you know, it's not something you go home and celebrate, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's a learning experience. I mean, they're the Supreme Court. They get to decide. Look, we have had cases where, in, in my court, each of us work individually. We decide a case uh, ourselves. And there was a case that another judge had. Uh, it's a post-conviction case where... The district judge decided one way. It went to the Third Circuit, which first had a three-judge panel decide, reverse two to one. It then went to the Third Circuit on bunk, which is all of the 11 judges. We then reversed the panel six to five. It then went to the Supreme Court, which reversed the on bunk Third Circuit, Third Circuit five to four. Who can say who's right and who's wrong in a situation like that? That's a true story. That's a great and reminder of the, the importance. And the Justice Kennedy. Well, <laughs> who's I don't a, remember on that one, but you're right. He's a great friend of the uh, National Constitution Center, and you remind us that there really are good arguments on both yes. sides of these cases, and that's why all of you have an obligation to educate yourself and make up your own mind. Uh, Neil, the Oprah question to you, what does it feel like to argue before the Supreme Court? Uh, well, it's scary every time. Um, you know, my, my first time uh, was a big case. It was challenging President Bush on the Guantanamo tribunals. And I, I think I probably for the, for, for the last two weeks didn't sleep much uh, each night, being really scared uh, about it. Um, the court is really magnificent in oral argument, particularly this court. Over you know, Other historical courts have been different. But since Justice Scalia got on the court in 1988, it is an extremely vigorous, active bench so much so that, uh, you know, I average about 70 questions per half-hour argument. And so there's a real premium placed on conciseness, but also on trying to figure out an answer that doesn't invite another follow-up question that makes your point the most effective
effective way uh, that you can. It's also, you know, something that you know that if you mess up, it can be, you know, the fodder for late night comedians uh, and the like. Um, so, you know, it's an incredibly daunting thing. But I have to say the, the overwhelming feeling every time I walk out of there is, wow, you know, we have one institution in government that really works. I mean, all nine of them, they are bringing their A-game every day. The questions are super hard. They're written by them. They're not, like, drafted by the clerks. They've read every brief. They know every footnote. They know every weakness. In, in every case, at least that I've argued, um, that's how it's been. And it's a really magnificent thing. And, you know, as an advocate, I worry about cameras. We were talking about cameras in the courtroom during the opening remarks. I worry about it because I think it might diminish some of that. But, boy, from a democratic perspective, I wish every American could see what I see every time I'm up there and arguing. And it's a shame that that courtroom only holds 400 people. You can obviously go and, and do it, um, is be one of those 400, but it'd be a pretty amazing thing for the country to behold this really profound institution led by really remarkable people on both the political right and the political left. From Oprah back to the cases, uh, uh, the First Amendment uh, needs to be discussed, and the case we've chosen to illuminate it is Schenck versus United States. It was decided in 1919, uh, and it had a famous dissent by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, that had a metaphor about, uh, about uh, free speech. Akil, tell us about the Schenck case. Um, well, I think it's actually on this list more as a metaphor for the importance of, of freedom of speech more generally, and not just vis-a-vis -vis the federal government, but Mo, perhaps even more importantly against states because remember a lot of what you call the Bill of Rights really is state and local governments. New York Times versus Sullivan is Alabama um, but it's the same free speech principle at the heart of the First Amendment. My own view, just you see, I'm a little bit of the skunk at the picnic. Marbury is important, but, but perhaps a little bit um, exaggerated in its significance. So we talk about Schenck because the big law school is Harvard Law School, and they've been pranking out um, generation after generation of lawyers who worship at the altar of the great Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was vastly overrated, <coughs> and, and even um, Louis Brandeis, and I know he's your hero, but another Harvard guy, so enough with the Harvard guys. Um, so, but here's the big point. He's a real populist. It's Yale for him. <laughs> exactly. This, this, this brings to mind... Chief Justice Roberts had the famous uh, question, are you concerned that the court is all graduates of uh, elite universities? And he said, they're not all elite universities. Some of them went to Yale. Right. <laughs> but here's the, just in the largest context, because you'll hear more about the facts of Schenck when we have this wonderful um, uh, um, uh, uh, segment just devoted to it. When the Constitution was adopted, it was drafted right across the road there. Um, we the people of the United States actually did something. We do. And what we did is debate the thing up and down a continent for a whole year in a conversation that was robust, uninhibited, wide open. There were people who were for it. There were people who were against it. People said nasty things about old Ben Franklin. He's senile. And George Washington, you know, he's, he's lost a step. And, and, and other people said, you're, you're crazy. Our existing governments are feckless and they don't get anything done. This would never happen again. The people would say that about government, of course. But, but they're back and forth. And no one gets shut down. That's baked into our Constitution even before there's a First Amendment. We have freedom of speech and of the press before the First Amendment. And, and what do the people insist on in this, in this ratification process? Dudes, you forgot the rights. The Bill of Rights comes out of that conversation. And what is its First Amendment? 
no abridgment of free speech and free press. And then what happens? Government starts abridging free speech and free press. John Adams signs his name to a law that makes it a crime to criticize the president. A crime, a federal crime. A crime to criticize the president. A crime to criticize Congress. It's not a crime to criticize the vice president, who's the leader of the opposition political party, Thomas Jefferson. All these rules expire after the next election, and that sucks. And yet courts, who are not doing vigorous judicial review in this Marbury era, uphold all of this. And, and governments will later make it a crime to criticize um, criticizing the government. And the courts are still, even as late as the early 20th century, upholding some of this. And Schenck is that later period where, again, whenever we're in wars, presidents are very thin-skinned and they try to suppress dissent. There was a quasi-war with France with the Sedition Act, World War I, um, uh, again, a, a war in trying to suppress dissent. And Schenck is from that era, but here's the big point. Freedom of speech was part of how we adopted the Constitution. We put in the First Amendment. Courts aren't enforcing it vigorously for a long time. And today, thank goodness, they do, and they do across the board, and this is universally embraced by Justices Scalia and Thomas on the right, and Justices Kagan and Sotomayor and Breyer and Ginsburg on the left, and Tony Kennedy maybe loves it most of all in the middle, um, and, and that's something genuinely to celebrate, that this thing that actually we did, and then we said, and we said again in the 14th Amendment is now finally being taken very seriously in a way that it wasn't at the time of shame. That is a beautiful statement of the consensus behind the First Amendment, and you can see Jeffrey Stone and Eugene Volokh, two scholars of very different perspectives, with their common statement about the meaning of free speech. Uh, Neil, uh, probably the second most reviled case on our list is Korematsu versus United States. Uh, upholding the Japanese internment. Tell us about that case yeah, and why it's but, you know You'll get the stories in the segment uh, you know, later in the fall, but I do think that the Japanese internment cases are supremely interesting just on a, you know, the, on a human level. So the first one is Gordon Hirabayashi's case. Now, Gordon is an 18-year-old student at the University of Washington, and he learns that the folks in Washington have set an exclusion order saying that because of his skin, because he's a Japanese-American, he's born, by the way, in Seattle. Uh, his parents were born in Japan. But just merely by the dint of his skin color, he could be curfewed. He had to be back in his, back in his room. And then ultimately, they moved Japanese-Americans to these camps. Uh, over 100,000 Japanese-Americans forcibly relocated out of their homes and moved into these camps. He's 18 years old and says, I'm going to challenge that. So he goes and stays out past his curfew order and goes to the FBI and turns himself in and says, I've violated the order, arrest me. And they scratch their heads and figure, what do we do? So they arrest him. They put him in a trial in Seattle. He goes to trial and he says, I did this, absolutely, but this law is unconstitutional. It singles me out on on the basis of my race and makes a bunch of other arguments. And the district court has none of it, says this is a time of war. You know, we're not going to be second-guessing the president and his generals who want to do this. So they detain it. So they they uphold his conviction and say, yeah, you're going to be sentenced. And so the judge says, the problem is that the only prison that I can sentence you to is a prison camp, and it's 1,000 miles away in Tucson, Arizona. So he says to Hirabayashi, he says, Mr. Hirabayashi, look, you've gone through this trial. That's good enough. You know, you can go home. And Gordon says, you know, I'm actually a Quaker, and part of my faith, uh, I'm saying this in the city, part of my faith is that if I've been validly sentenced, I've got to serve my sentence. And the judge says, listen, I can't send you. I don't have the resources to send you to Tucson. 
So what does Gordon do? He says, don't worry, I'll get there. And he hitchhikes all the way to Tucson to serve his sentence, over a 1,000 miles. And he gets to the prison in Tucson, and he shows up and to turn himself in, and the, the warden says, we have no record of you. And he says, no, I'm Gordon Hirabayashi, I've been convicted, and so on. And they said, the warden says, don't worry about it, you know, I don't have any paperwork, just go back home. And he goes, Gordon goes through the whole story again, I'm a Quaker, I've got to serve my sentence, and you know, in the whole thing. And ultimately, the warden says, come back the next day, they figure out who he is, and he serves his sentence. But that's the kind of man he was, a man who didn't take up arms against the government or rebel in some way, but fought his system in the court, fought his challenge in the legal system. He believed so much in it, and yet the Supreme Court didn't vindicate him and didn't vindicate Fred Korematsu and instead deferred to the president. And there's a whole sad storyline of why the court did that, and it's very fashionable to blame the court, but a lot of the blame lies with the government and the Solicitor General, the nation's top lawyer, who effectively misrepresented what was going on to the Supreme Court. And the Solicitor General knew it at the time. He knew he was telling the Supreme Court things that weren't true about the Japanese-American threat. Even uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover didn't believe that the internment of Japanese internments was justified, Japanese Americans was justified. So a very sad day for the court, and one that I think every justice on this court is cognizant of, both in terms of demanding candor from the federal government lawyers, but also in terms of their own responsibilities. How do they balance national security versus individual liberties in a time of armed conflict? And note that, he's, that Neil told you about a Japanese American, a person born on American soil, whether his parents are citizens or not, you see, he is a birthright citizen by dint of the 14th Amendment's first sentence, which was introduced to overrule the Dred Scott case. And now you begin to understand the stakes when there's very loose talk about how people who are born in the United States are somehow not citizens because we have to inquire into the status of their parents. um, and so, uh, once again, the centrality of birthright citizenship as a principle linking back to Dred Scott and through the Japanese internment cases and teeing up the conversation that's going to be happening um, in just a few minutes, perhaps, in uh, the Republican Party debate. Well, speaking of that debate, uh, like all good C-SPAN shows, this one should end on time. But I want to close by telling you, ladies and gentlemen, both how excited we are and asking you to really join us as pioneers in this project of national constitutional education. You have the opportunity to watch the shows every Monday and then learn more. Go click on the links, click on the websites, read the decisions, read the majority opinions, read the concurrences and dissents, and then make up your own mind. You do not have to be a lawyer to be engaged in this process of constitutional education. You just need to be a citizen, a a person who's hungry for constitutional knowledge. Uh, uh, Akhil mentioned uh, Justices Holmes and Brandeis, and they have two exhortations which are really relevant for our series. Justice Holmes said, the Constitution is made for people of fundamentally differing points of view. And that's what we believe here at the Constitution Center with our inspiring motto, visit, learn, debate. The Constitution is a debate that all citizens can participate in, and C-SPAN believes that with its great nonpartisan motto. And then Justice Brandeis, my hero, who despite the scurrilous uh, (laughs) accusations of Akil, was the greatest uh, justice of the 20th century, reminds us that Public discussion is a political duty. It's not just a right that we have of free speech. We have an obligation 
to educate ourselves enough about the best arguments on all sides of the Constitution that we can be informed citizens, which is really uh, what it means to be uh, fully participatory in American democracy. Thanks so much to Susan for her vision in creating this series and to her phenomenal team. Thanks to you for joining, and please join me in thanking our panelists and tune in on October 5th. Thank you so much. to draw near and give their attention. Number 759, Ernest Miranda, Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments number 18, Roe against Wade. Marbury and Madison is probably the most famous case this court ever decided. Dred and Harriet existed as enslaved people here on land where slavery wasn't legally recognized. Putting the Brown decision into effect would take presidential orders and the presence of federal troops and marshals and the courage of children. We wanted to pick cases that changed the direction and import of the court in society and that also changed society. search and Mrs. Mapp demanded to see the paper and to read it, see what it was, which they refused to do so she grabbed it out of his hand to look at it and thereafter the police officer handcuffed her. I can't imagine a better way to bring the Constitution to life than by telling the human stories behind great Supreme Court cases. Fred Korematsu boldly opposed the forced internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. After being convicted for failing to report for relocation, Mr. Korematsu took his case all the way to the Supreme Court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite unpopular. Five, five, four, four.
If you had to pick one freedom that was the most essential to the functioning of a democracy, it has to be freedom of speech. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Landmark Cases, an exploration of 12 historic Supreme Court decisions and the human stories behind them. A new series on C-SPAN, produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, debuting Monday, October 5th at 9 p.m. And as a companion to our new series, Landmark Cases, the book. It features the 12 cases we've selected for the series, with a brief introduction into the background, highlights, and impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow. Published by C-SPAN in cooperation with Congressional Quarterly Press. Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping and handling. Get your copy at cspan.org slash landmarkcases. Coming up tomorrow, 